0: Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, we're live for another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. And today I'm very excited to have two people that are way smarter than me on here, (laughs) especially in science. uh, I barely passed chemistry and biology in college. So um, yes, that's not my field. That's why I ended up in seminary. Um, But (laughs) we have uh, Dr. Patrick Bennett. I mean, Dr. Patrick Smith, I'm sorry. I'm calling you by a high school uh, friend I have named Patrick Bennett, but Dr. Patrick Smith and Dr. Angela Guzman. And Patrick, you're in, where are you located?
1: Uh, I'm in Massachusetts at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, yeah.
0: And Angela, where are you?
2: I'm at um, in Orlando, Florida at Winnie Palmer Hospital for Women and Children.
0: Awesome. So today uh, we're going to kind of piggyback off of a conversation that me and Angela had a while ago on the podcast. If you listen regularly, you know, Angela is no stranger to the G3 project and uh, a great friend of mine. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, bioethics, how far is too far. Angela's kind of going to lead the conversation. I'm going to be here chiming in where, where I can. Um, so uh, without further ado, Angela, you can take it away. <laughs>
2: I really quickly wanted to say, just Patrick, um, how did you initially get an interest in bioethics? Because a lot of us don't necessarily are necessarily interested in bioethics. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, it's an interesting story. Uh, I often tell people I kind of stumbled into the world of bioethics. And as I stumbled into this world, I also recognized that this uh, may be a a very uh, common narrative in many respects. My primary training, at least at the graduate school level, is in uh, philosophy. I also have divinity studies and theological studies in my background as well. And so I was actually teaching at a small school uh, in Michigan. There was a gentleman who was a medical director of a hospice care center who was taking classes there. We had a mutual friend. We ended up chatting a little bit. I sat in. Uh, he invited me to sit in one of their ethics committees uh, as a community member, just in a ba- with a background of philosophy, theology and doing some work in ethics. And one thing led to another as being a community member. There was a shift that had taken place in the organization And they asked if I'd be willing to come in and oversee the ethics uh, department uh, in addition to the work I was doing uh, with my teaching. And so I thought about it. At first, I wasn't going to do it. And then after talking with several people and just telling them about the situation, they just kind of looked at me and said, now, why aren't you doing that? Uh, And So I kind of stumbled into it uh, in that respect, but had the opportunity to work with a number of wonderful people who've helped me quite a bit to think about these issues in profound ways. And really, I think, give hands and feet to the kind of work that I'm doing now. So.
2: Uh, it is. It's pretty awesome. I um, I hope you don't mind. I was actually just kind of excited. So I was reviewing your CV and again with one of my Christian colleagues, and he was just overwhelmed and impressed. And then we started brainstorming and discussing just um, the fact that the marriage of theology and spiritual, um, excuse me, theology and science, and so one of the first questions that I kind of had for you was, from the science perspective, we don't know when the actual definition of life begins. We know what it takes for life to begin, but we don't necessarily have that definition. So what does um, you know the, theologi- the theology teach us on what the definition of life truly is?
1: Yeah. Wow, that's a that's a a, a full question, and it's one that I want to be very careful as I've you know chatted with Lisa over the years, uh, you know, in the good words of the American philosopher. Uh, Clint Eastwood's uh, character, uh, Harry Callahan, Dirty Harry. <laughs> man has got to know his limitations, right? And so I, I want to be very careful in terms of my limitations. Uh, so I'm not a, uh, uh, an empirical scientist, even though I've done a little bit of work in philosophy of science. However, I do think the way to get at this question is going to be uh, from a from a different vantage point, right? And, and the way I think about it is this way. First, what is the relationship, as I see it, between theology and the natural sciences? So I want to say that theology and natural sciences would be kind of a tale of, uh, just throughout the phrase, two hermeneutics, right? Uh, Two different ways of kind of understanding and interpreting the world. I also hold, as a philosopher-theologian, this idea that God wrote two books, right? The Book of Nature uh, and the Book of Scripture, such that when we properly interpret both, that they should not contradict or conflict, that they should actually have a some type of coherence together. It also means that if God is the author of both books, and that if we have been made in a particular way to understand God's world, as well as God's word, then we have to do the hard work, right? The hard work of letting both of those talk to each other. And so I do think that uh, we need the Uh, people who are doing work in the sciences, in the biological sciences at the very early stages of uh, human development to try to get a sense of what's going on empirically speaking, Mm -hmm. and then our theological values come in to uh, try to identify, in a sense, why that matters, if that makes uh, sense. And so in moral philosophy, we often say that many moral judgments turn on non-moral facts, right? Meaning that we have to understand what the empirical data is in order to make the particular types of judgments. Now, uh, there is a large section of Christian theology thinking about bioethics Mm -hmm. that want to say that entity that is clearly human has moral status, right? And some would even go as far to say full moral status, right? So this would say at the very early stages of life, right? Uh, However, it's understood if we can get at that, uh, let the empirical sciences tell us what that earliest stage of life is, right? Some want to suggest from a theological perspective that that particular life, uh, insofar as human, uh, has moral status. And might be considered say uh the least of these or those who are on the margins or those who should be afforded some type of uh pr- protection so let me maybe stop there and then you can interact with me a, a little bit uh further uh on on this
2: no that's perfect because um for us just from a purely obstetrics point this is not speaking for other professions but for us um we consider it being a established life so to say when the baby is at a point where it looks like a human and it has a heartbeat, and it has the ability to then grow to be a, a full pregnancy. Yeah. And, um, I have some Catholic, uh, I have some Catholic patients who may not necessarily want to accept the birth control that may even block the potential yeah. for uh, a life to form. And so there's always a conversation where I just encourage them to, you have to live by your own morals and your own ethics. And I educate them on um, what we as, from a scientific perspective, has defined when, when life or, or a viable life is then there. And then you have to go from there. But that is a really good, those are really good uh, and eloquent response.
1: Well, well, you know, it's interesting and just in, um, you know, the way uh, to get uh, even a little more granular the way some theological ethicists have, have wrestled with this issue. Uh, and so many Catholic moral theologians, even though I'm not uh, a representative of that tradition, uh, but also had to you know uh read quite a bit in that tradition. I think they have some very important things to say, but one of the you know ways of developing the argument is just to say uh that being a member of the human species, so to speak, is what kind of gives that moral status to, uh, let's say, a developing entity. And mm-hmm. so what they would want to argue with, you know, in some of the ways that medical science sometimes uh, delineates these issues is to say that the level of development, right, or the whatever the stage or the level of development of this developing human being uh is not a morally relevant criterion right now again that's debated right uh amongst you know uh, many folks they would just say this doesn't seem to be morally relevant uh in some ways because you can even extra- stretch that out that you see different levels of development uh at later stages right but that doesn't necessarily confer at least on this way of framing it Uh, greater or lesser forms of moral status. And so then they just kind of work backwards with respect to the logic uh, and say that so we have to be very careful of assigning moral status uh, to particular uh, questions about level development and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, Again, these are are very complex uh, issues and uh, theologians from different stripes land different in different places. Right. Mm
2: Um, so another question or thing that was definitely brought up, because I think when you think of fields that are going to push the envelope and push uh, science too far, um, definitely within obstetrics, we now have the ability to help women who can't normally have babies have babies. But even within that, it's called in vitro fertilization. And even within that, we are now able to select, let's say, the gender of our child um, And there was potential discussion that eventually we will even be able to choose the physical features of our children from something as simple as hair and eye color, um, in addition to them being a male or female. So in your opinion, uh, is that a little bit far or should we scale that back?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, again, one of those questions of the uh, so I would say the technological imperative. Right. You know, uh, if we can do it, we ought to do it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that we're often having to wrestle with those who uh, do ethics and bioethics, more philosophy, theological ethics, whatever category is always having to stop and reflect long enough to say just because we uh, can do something ought we do it. And the tension of that is that it always seems so stifling, right? Because the medical technology is progressing. Uh, things are going forward. People are looking at positive benefits of some of these things. And then you get the ethicists kind of coming in here, uh, wanting to do some more reflection and kind of uh, stymie the process, if you will. And so uh, sometimes it's seen as being like a bioconservative or, or uh, unnecessarily limiting with respect to what we can do. But I do think these are some profound questions because uh, it raises a number of issues for us in terms of, on one hand, I think it raises for us, um, what is it uh, that is developing in the mother's womb, say, right? I mean, what, what is that, that, that entity? Uh, Is it a human being, human person, right? Such that we should treat that person as person, In its uniqueness, uh, in that uh, person's uh, particularity, right, whatever that particularity is, uh, or do we think about that which is in the mother's womb as a commodity, right, Uh, Mm -hmm. something that uh, by definition is supposed to make us happy, uh, such that it could be, you know, expendable. Uh, such that when we look at it, we can think about ways of quality control with respect to it uh if it 's a commodity, and so when we start making these kinds of decisions right and and if we uh make inferences one way or the other, uh, then this has profound uh impact on how we think about the value of human beings uh in, in general and I think that 's a fundamental question that we have to ask ourselves, you know kind of what kind of parents Uh, you know, do we want to be? And why are we making choices about, you know, the kind of offspring that we want to uh, bring into this world? And then the question becomes uh, the decision for certain characteristics as opposed to other characteristics. Is that a negative uh, value judgment against those who don't have those characteristics? Uh, If not, then why those characteristics over some others, right? And so then, you know, if the argument is something like, well, this is just what we choose to do, uh, then this raises the question of, you know, kind of this notion of autonomy run amok, right? Uh, Is there something more fundamental that we're getting at here uh, or that these kinds of choices are revealing that we need to think about with regard to our, our basic humanity, uh, and it's tough, right? Uh, it is very, very difficult, but uh, but I do think this raises these kinds of existential uh questions, at least in well,
0: my it, mind. I can interject mm-hmm. something here, it, it makes it difficult when I was talking to Angela before about this, and I t- spoke to you, uh, Patrick, about this because when we talk about human life and made in the image of God and we say before, you know, we quote Jeremiah where he says, before when you were in your mother's womb, like I formed you. And then you start talking about, well, no, doc your your OBGYN kind of <laughs> formed you because they manipulated what uh what sex you're gonna be, what eye color, or one could argue, I guess God is working through. uh those choices i guess later but it becomes hard to use that point um when you can manipulate uh things of that nature yeah yeah
1: well i mean it 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 is interesting right i mean because you think about those passages in psalms right psalm 139 i believe and also um psalm 22 right talk about these kinds of issues and again one who uh, in, uh applies theological categories to this conversation i think need to be you know kind of careful right uh, in our analysis because there is this tension between uh say like divine providence right in terms of you know god uh being uh in control in some way with respect to these issues and then human responsibility The reality is, as human beings, we do make decisions, right? We do make choices uh, and we do try to live our lives. And those of us who may uh, consider ourselves part of the Christian faith or the Christian tradition, try to make decisions and live uh, those lives within the framework of our uh, Christian understanding of the world, right? And so the question is, do those choices begin to, do they kind of undermine divine providence, right? Or does divine providence just run roughshod over human responsibility such that we don't have genuine choices? So there is a creative tension that is there. Uh, and so I think we do have to be careful of, you know, trying to say, okay, these choices, these are ours, these choices here are God's, right? So to speak, uh, I do think there are limits, right, in terms of where we should go but we shouldn't kind of uh, 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 kind of cherry pick, if you will, right? Sometimes we would cherry pick for things we are uncomfortable with. We say, well, that's the prerogative of God, right? Uh, things that we're very comfortable with, oh, well, that's kind of our decision. When we, I think the Elijah, we have to understand this combination of both. However, having said that though, I do think the Psalm 139 and Psalm 22 passages get at something very important and profound, right? There is a sense in which the uniqueness and the particularity of developing human beings, right, uh, seems to be uh, uh, under the purview of God, right? That God, regardless of of the outcome, right, regardless of whatever kind of genetic uh, structure, right, Mm -hmm. with the variation of the human genome, right? I mean, what's what's normal about the human genome is this variance, right? Mm -hmm. So so the uniqueness of, of all of us, that God is in some way, Involved in that, and I think we have to take that very seriously as Christians, and to ask ourselves: uh, Are we trying to manipulate things? Are we crossing a line uh, that is not part of the purview of uh, what you know we should we should be doing? At the end of the day, do we see the human, developing human beings uh, as uh, person as person, or perhaps person as commodity? And uh, and I hate to put it in such stark ways. Sure given the difficulties that some people have in wrestling with these issues, people who may be very well-intentioned, right? And I acknowledge that um, as one who's, you know been involved in various settings of pastoral care and so on and so forth. But I think these are the fundamental questions we've got to get at.
2: Mm-hmm. I just want to um, go back to the point where you said um, when you are able to, form, basically when we we're able to choose certain characteristics and it makes us quite ask questions about our humanity. If we are then made in the image of God, See, some people may feel that their image is more reflective of God than other people's. And so one of the things that, you know, I kind of discuss with my colleague who, who is Caucasian is that now if we start picking out character traits, maybe some that are valued more than others, are people unconsciously um, going to pick that which they feel is more, correct or more pure um, when or or in their image. And so it, it does. It just kind of went he like he when I told him that I was in a very subtle way trying to say I think people are going to breed characteristics for one population over the other and intentionally try to breed out certain traits and that that's a huge thing ethically because those who can afford to even do this kind of technology are already the ones that don't look like us.
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, that is just a a profound point. And this is where many people who are thinking about this issue in the, um, from the perspective of the disability community, right? I mean, these are the the points that are being made, right? There's a reason why people choose particular characteristics uh, as opposed um, uh, to others in some ways. And so it does raise this profound question in terms of, Well, whose uh, image, right, are we trying to, uh, you know, recreate in a particular kind of way? So this really gets to this idea, I think it's a larger issue of social ethics, right? The Mm -hmm. social context and structure in which we find ourselves. So, for example, in the disability community, the question often is, uh, is are our social values and our social structures, do they uh, make people who may have, let's say, disabilities handicapped? Right, so, in other words, we have certain social structures in pra- place that make it harder for individuals to kind of be who they are. so there's nothing wrong I mean you know there's nothing necessarily you know like uh, uh deeply wrong or flaw with the person. It's mm-hmm. just our social structure sometimes exacerbates. Uh, some of these variants because we have made decisions as a society that we value certain traits and characteristics and have built our practices institutions and our structures around those values, right? I think the same thing can be said when one goes back to look in terms of sociology, right, with uh, critical race theory in terms of notions of whiteness. Uh, again, this is not people from European descent, right, but this political ideology of whiteness that sometimes permeates that basically says that uh, people of color are inferior to those of European descent. Uh, now, this is something that's uh, historically, you know, kind of cataloged for us, right? I mean, we've, we've heard these stories. We've also seen how theology has been hijacked in some ways. There's no- the image of God, where people talk about the image of God and the prototype of what the image is, is would be kind of, let's say, uh, kind of white European reality, such that people would say that if the uh, white man is made in the image of God, the Negro is made of some lesser image, right? I mean, these are this is language that's that's readily uh, accessible, and I want to mm-hmm. say this is when theology has become hijacked. But nevertheless, these are some of the values and ideas that permeate some of our, uh, you know, theological discourse, as well as the social structures in which we we live in the world. Right. So I do think it's a serious issue. Uh, and some people may be listening to this thinking, wow, you've gone a long way from, you know, in my private home, wanting to, you know, choose the sex of my child, uh, this private, you know, kind of uh, view and eye color and have gone to this larger you know, kind of picture Uh, And I can understand and I can appreciate that. And I can almost uh, uh, agree to a a point. But I also want to say that these individual choices and what informs those individual choices are not wholly detached from the larger social vision that we see about the world and why we feel the need to make these choices about characteristics if we can do so. Why do we think that this may provide an advantage to our offspring? Right
2: oh, um,
1: this is interesting, right
2: mm-hmm. and
1: one other point I'll make very quickly here when we think about the incarnation of Jesus for those of us who are Christians, you know there's an interesting passage in Philippians chapter two, which talks about the Word of God, the second person, of the Holy Trinity, uh, to speak in those theological terms, uh, who took on human flesh and dwelt among us, and there was a sense in which uh that the privilege that Jesus had as the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity was uh uh, so to speak uh some of those some of those privileges were put on hold for the purpose of the earthly ministry of coming to seek and serve and save and fix broken humanity. Right. And I think that if we want to truly as Christians be people who follow Christ uh, and then we should take some um, um, direction from this idea of the incarnation of giving up privileges. There are certain privileges that maybe we have that perhaps we should give up for the sake of serving others so that we can in the end, ironically, be more like Christ.
2: That was profound, (laughs) but (laughs) it's so true. All right. Um, So again, in our conversation um, with my colleague, another thing that kind of came up for us was um, with the marriage of uh, ministry And then for you, bioethics, for us, just medicine. Um, And basically having those spiritual conversations with your patients. And you mentioned hospice before. I did a a sub-I or sub-internship at a hospice facility where there was a Christian physician and he spoke um, with all of his patients unapologetically about Christ. Um, But in that same respect, we also have colleagues who may not be Christian, who are uh, Muslim, who are Hindu, but they don't speak to their patients about their religion. They are very much reserved in that. And um, I mean, if you have, there's this saying that if you are with a very vulnerable population, um, i.e. the hospice population, uh, then should you really be having those conversations or introducing those conversations to patients who are already vulnerable and is it ethically okay if you are in a position of power to be then having spiritual conversations, particularly of your religion with patients. So have you have, um, you and your colleagues ever had these kind of discussions on when it's appropriate to talk to patients about, um, their religion and Christianity in particular?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, oh gosh. Um, I work with some folks who have wrestled with this issue, uh, over and over again, um, in the spirituality, medicine, religion, health, um, uh, kind of think and working groups. Uh, there is a national conference called the uh, Medicine and Religion Conference. Uh, so those who are maybe watching this may want to, uh, you know, kind of do a search and thinking about this. But these are folks from various religious traditions and backgrounds mm-hmm. who are wrestling with and thinking about what it means to kind of embody their particular faith as who they are in these kind of professional healthcare spaces. And uh, and so it, what's interesting to me is that being in some of those spaces to hear uh, people from various traditions speak uh, kind of authentically from the thick resources of their tradition as they wrestle with this, there's something kind of refreshing about that because uh, in certain spaces, we think we have to kind of thin out these various uh, religious traditions and try to downplay them in such a way uh, that uh, it minimizes the conflict. But I think what often happens is that religious uh, ideas uh, and religious values for good or for ill play a central role in people's lives and shapes the way they think, how they frame uh, their suffering and their experiences and perhaps what resources they have to deal with those kinds of issues. And so from a Christian perspective, you know, one who takes, uh, you know, if those uh, traditions that take seriously, uh, you know, notions of judgment and afterlife and so on and so forth, many Christian physicians, professionals feel a profound weightiness right to their work especially end of life saying what is my responsibility being placed where i am Mm -hmm. And so i do think there are a couple of things to think about and uh so i'll try to give a couple points here but then defer uh to many of my colleagues who who are on the front lines who are medical doctors who have thought about these issues uh and wrestle with them in more profound ways than than i have as someone who is not a clinician so i'll be very careful about presuming Uh, certain, uh, in terms of uh, prescribing, this is what, you know, a clinician should do when I'm not in that situation. But from an ethical perspective, you hit the nail on the head, uh, Angela. Uh, There is a power dynamic with respect to the vulnerability of sick patients Mm -hmm. and the power of the professional who uh, on most accounts will say will be relatively healthy as far as we know, Uh, and also one who is a Christian, right? And so I think we need to be extremely careful, right, Uh, that we don't uh, manipulate people or have them thinking that our genuine care for them, our genuine love of neighbor, right, our expression of love of neighbor in that space is dependent upon their, you know, being open or sensitive to, Uh, our, you know, kind of notions of Christian spirituality and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we often uh, say in this is that sometimes we can take our lead or our cue from the patient and the families, right? If the patient and the families are raising these issues or asking particular questions, sometimes they will ask, right, a professional, how have you thought about these issues? And then that opens up some space and some dialogue but I think it requires quite a bit of wisdom. Uh, Also, I know some people, when they feel the weightiness of this, they say, well, if I don't say this, then, you know, their blood is on my hands, right? And I think, while I can appreciate that on one hand, I also think there's a bit of, um, it it could potentially be a a bit of hubris, right? You know, to suggest that uh, out of all the circumstances of that person's life, right? That, you know, they've come to that particular point, and we don't know what God might be doing in that person's life, right? We have, you know, we we may not know. And, and so, of course, we need to be, uh, for those of us who are part of Christian faith tradition, you know, uh, as we talk about being led by the Spirit, right, uh, using discernment and wisdom, and so on and so forth, I think we can um, try to navigate those waters. But I do think we have to be uh, very careful there. And this is when we rely on divine providence, uh, uh, in, in, you know, so anyway, but there's uh, probably more that should be said in that respect, but I would want to defer to my colleagues who have lived in these spaces. I'm thinking about people like, uh, maybe Afar Curlin or Michael and Tracy Balboni, who has done work in these areas, uh, Richard Payne, Uh, who was at Duke Divinity School for a number of years, an oncologist. And I hope they won't mind me (laughs)
2: putting their
1: names out there. But I'm just so impressed with their work um, uh, that I, I, you know, would refer. And also from a different perspective, uh, a gentleman by the name of Daniel P. Sulmacy. Dan Sulmacy was at uh, University of Chicago for a number of years. Now he's over, I think, Georgetown. The Kennedy Institute of Ethics was on President Barack Obama's uh, uh, bioethics council, uh, um, I think for at least one term, maybe two terms, I'm not sure. I don't want to, uh, don't quote me on that, but, but anyway, uh, so, but Dan Macy has some very interesting ways of thinking about these issues that, uh, as a kind of a Catholic, he's a medical doctor, as well as a a philosopher, uh, and also one who works in Catholic natural law tradition. So anyway, just a lot of resources out there. So I better stop there.
2: (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, have So in your studies, what do you feel are the biggest barriers uh, for not for researchers, clinicians, um, those who greatly believe in the beauty of science and those who are also Christians? Um, what are the biggest hurdles for believers uh, that come up when you have those discussions with them?
1: uh barriers or hurdles for christian scientists right who want to uh scientists who are christian who want to d- do some some uh research and what are what are some of the hurdles that they face in my conversations is that kind of the question
2: i'm sorry actually, let me clarify um personal struggles so um with colleagues who have personal struggles that they may encounter as they continue to learn and um, basically become more wise spiritually, but also more educated scientifically. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I think one of the hurdles really is just the struggle of what it means to navigate the various worlds uh, in terms of your Christian faith community, as well as the standards uh, from the scientific community. I want to say that a healthy, uh, mature, uh, gosh, and this sounds so almost like is begging the question, but I hope that a mature, uh, Christian faith community would encourage those in the sciences to use all of the gifts and the skills that they uh, have developed uh, and being given to engage in the best research that they possibly can, right? And to love God with all of their their mind, right? The great command says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so we can't forget about loving God with our mind, and part of our calling, our vocation as Christians is to love God with our mind, which is an expression of not only love of God, but also love of neighbor, Right, In terms of how we leverage uh, the work that we do, so I think uh, making sure that we have communities right faith communities that can embrace and nurture and come alongside and uh, just really encourage people working in the sciences, uh, but then also for those individuals not to be embarrassed by uh, their theological categories that may inform some of their values right This is a struggle of burden because for so uh, long, right? In some of those spaces, you know, people will just uh, kind of dismiss uh, kind of religious ways of thinking about the world or maybe religious values uh, or, uh, you know, these things just don't come up and people do feel genuinely feel these pressures as if they were, if they were to kind of hint as if they are sympathetic to some of these, you know, values or if it shapes the way, you know, they maybe see the world, um, you know, that they feel like, oh, this is going to be a problem problem, or I'm kind of shunned uh, from uh, my community and so on and so forth. And so I do think that people have to kind of come to terms with this, find a good community. One of the things I recognize is that there are probably more people out there in some of these spaces that have some shared values than we may initially think, right? And oftentimes I've been in spaces where, you know, I'll be saying some things. And, you know, for me, I really can't uh, hide all that much, right? I mean, I teach at a theological seminary, right? You know, and I do this work in philosophical theology as well as ethics. So people sometimes expect this kind of, you know, uh, theological kind of part. And so oftentimes in conversations with people, I recognize that uh, they are also appreciating kind of the role that these uh, some of these values can play. And I think that we uh, and so so what I've been trying to do is encourage people, uh, if you're part of a good, strong community where you guys can encourage one another and recognize at the end of the day that you're not really by yourself. Right. Uh, there are, you know, a uh, uh, couple billion Christians, perhaps, you know, throughout the world. Right. And the overwhelming number of people on the planet. Right. would be uh, religionists in some way. Right. Such that it's not as narrow of an audience as we may think uh, in some ways. And so we just have to, again, with wisdom uh, and love and grace, engage others, but also have a stronger sense of who we are. And this is where I would say, Angela, that uh, from I'll speak directly to those who may be part of Christian faith communities who are uh, uh, medical professionals. Mm-hmm. This is where we have to be very careful where a good thing uh, can become an idol, right? Where, you know, when good things become a God thing so that if we are overly concerned about our profession, right? Mm-hmm. Our kind of professional and social standing and the way people view us, if that's the center of our identity, such that that is what grounds us and gives us our value and worth so that if anything challenges or threatens that, that it, it, it we be start to, let's say, disintegrate in some way. Then I want to say, this is where we have to go back again and look at the core of the gospel and just ask ourselves the question, what really gives me my identity? Right? Uh, And what is that uh, thing that I'm holding on to that I think is my value and worth? Or do I see my worth and value in the fact that I'm known and loved by God and redeemed by uh, the work of Jesus Christ, right? In terms of his cross, the cross, and the resurrection. Again, that's a profoundly, I will say, Christian theological claim. And not everyone uh, would maybe embrace those particular claims, but at least for those who are in the Christian faith community, these are the kinds of resources that should continually reshape our understanding of what we have been called to in our work uh, places. So we stand on Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, do it hardly as unto the Lord and not unto human beings.
0: Wow. That's good. I just, I just checked the time and we're right at the, the ending mark. I know we could go on forever on this topic. I'm like thinking through all that you guys have talked about and I didn't even really think through, you know, the choices that, those in medicine have to make all the time. And it's like, you think about things and you read things, but then you see people on the front lines and you think, oh, wow, I never thought about it like that. Especially even the hospice thing you mentioned and the power dynamic that plays into it. I would have never thought about that. So you you guys have actually opened my eyes to things um, that I hadn't considered before. Um, and I'm I'm probably going to see if y'all would do a follow-up uh, maybe <laughs> maybe in a couple months because this was very very good but I know you guys have to uh go back to your uh your work uh so um I'm gonna let you go but thank you guys for tuning in um thank you Angela and Patrick I appreciate it and I misquoted um psalm earlier. So excuse me for that error. Uh, <laughs> I was quoted Jeremiah one, but I always like to correct myself on here just because this is an apologetics program. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I don't want don't to lead anybody astray. Uh, so thank you, Patrick, for cleaning that up for me. Um, uh, yeah. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. All right.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much.
0: Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the ju 3 Project podcast. As always, you can catch all our past episodes at wwwju 3 projectcom or you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play by searching the Jew 3 Project. You can also get better equipped with our Bible Engagement app by searching the App Store, Google Play or Apple App Store by searching the Jude 3 Project, and that will help you better engage scripture on a daily basis. If you would like to donate to the Jude 3 Project, go to jude3project.com and hit the Donate tab. In addition, you can follow us on, on social media by searching at Jude 3 Project on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, here at the Jude 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.